Welcome everyone to the Recursive Podcast, the place where you can meet the leaders of the innovation communities here in Southeast Europe. Our next guest is a Frenchman who chose to live, run a business uh, here in Bulgaria 15 years ago. Xavier Marsenak is currently also the co-founder of Nasekomo, a biotech startup converting organic waste into high-value animal protein through the use of insects. Before that, he co-founded several successful companies in the BPO industry. He is still the vice chairman of one of them, Telus International Europe, a company that is a leader in BPO services in Europe with close to 5,000 employees, mostly based in Bulgaria and Romania at this point. Xavier graduated uh, as an IT engineer and holds an MBA degree from INSEAD and is a passionate runner, hiker, and a big fan of the Rodopo Mountains. Welcome, Xavier. Thank you very much. Very good introduction. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, very impressive biography, I must say, and a resume. <laughs> You've well, been I've around. I've been around, you know, I'm yeah. not that young anymore. So yes, I, uh, you yeah. had a lot of opportunities with education, I can only imagine. And still you chose to spend your life mostly in Bulgaria. That's true, yeah. <clears throat> Why so? It's a long story. I can only guess, yeah. But back no. then in the 90s? Yeah, actually, yeah. I first came in Bulgaria about <clears throat> 30 years ago. Oh, okay. A few days, I think it was the 11th of November, 91. And you remember the exact date? I remember the exact date because I... I did my uh, French military service in Bulgaria. We had military obligation at, at that time, and uh, you can apply to a special program which uh, would send you to work for a French company or French organization abroad. It's what I did, and uh, I was offered to come to work for the French embassy in Sofia uh, back in '91. Uh, mm -hmm. So my first like discovery visit was in uh, on the 11th of November because I remember I was working. In Paris, and 11th of November is a bank holiday in France, so I could take one day off and, and come here for a couple of days. And then I settled down here back in uh, uh, March 2012. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I worked about two years for, for the French embassy and uh, as an IT engineer and in charge of all the IT system of the French embassy. And after that, I decided, well, I find that's a great opportunity to be in Bulgaria. I had learned Bulgarian. And I thought, well, there's, it's, a new, it's a country where everything will change. So why should I go back to France where things are moving very slowly? One, where in Bulgaria, everything is to be built. So I decided to stay here for some time. Um, <clears throat> was very young. I was like 23. Mm -hmm. uh, look at trying to start some business with friends, but I had absolutely zero experience. And I ended up working for uh, Coopers and Ibrand, which was to become... PricewaterhouseCoopers, the audit yes. company later on. <clears throat> they were opening an office in Sofia. <clears throat> uh, at this time, there were lots of privatization work going on, lots of foreign investors coming. So the, the office was five people when I joined the company. Mm -hmm. And when I left four years later, it was 80 people. So it was a huge uh, learning curve for me. Uh, I've been involved in many... Uh, uh, transactions, uh, helping foreign investors selling in Bulgaria, uh, reviewing all the financial information of the company, doing financial audits of uh, banks, insurance, uh, manufacturing companies, but also building a team around the 
uh, you know, the core uh, management team that we were at this time in, uh, in Cooper's and Ibrant until uh, 98. I can only imagine how Maybe insightful. you were not born. Yeah? <clears throat> <laughs> I, I'm not true. I was actually born. I wasn't that old so that I can understand what privatization meant or what democracy meant and all these things. Uh, this is you know, things that I'm explaining to myself now, studying the history. And it's for me very exciting to have someone who has been observing that, but also from the lens of, uh, you know, someone who came from abroad, who is coming from an already developed country. And I, but I also want to make another mark that, uh, you know, is it very typical for the entrepreneurial mindset. So you go to a place and back then Bulgaria was still, you know, in its infancy when it comes to internationalization and um, business and, and, you know, all these things that we see now here. And you just see opportunities and you just see, hey, there is something that I can do and I c it will develop so fast and it will be much more exciting if I have to do it than if I have to do it in France. So this is, uh, you know, something that I see again and again in mm -hmm. entrepreneurs. And in this sense, <clears throat> I can only guess that this entrepreneurial spirit is something that you've been, mm, I wouldn't say maybe born with, but uh, you had it from obviously a very early age. Yeah, I don't know where it comes from, but uh, maybe my father, he was not an entrepreneur, he was working himself a big audit company, but uh, he told me a story about his customers, his friends, so... Uh, that's things I hear that come into into your mind for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it's interesting because I, after you know I start to be an entrepreneur here, and I decided to to join a big international company, <clears throat> give you some security actually in mm -hmm. terms of a salary, a career path, a training. Uh, I then uh, you know decided uh, in '98 that I wanted to um, do something else and go out of Bulgaria. Okay. And I went to live in London for a few years. I first worked for a big international uh, American company uh, involved in uh, uh, air conditioning system, lift system, etc. The Otis and UTC group mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, for about a year, and then I joined uh, Ernst and Young, another yeah. audit company, and I worked in the, their um, <clears throat> internet and uh, telecommunication group back in uh, was 1999 to 2001. It was very interesting because it was a time where all the uh, IPOs of all the internet were the first internet bubble. So, I was just about to ask you what was the, the you know the next big thing back then. <laughs> yeah, I mean everything was internet bubbles, and we were uh, supporting uh, lots of startups, going raising funds, going on to IPO, and yeah, very exciting times, a lot of work. Uh, but then we see just the bubble explode, and uh, we. It was somehow a, a good time and a good decision I'd made to go and do my MBA this time, back in 2001, so I went to, to INSEAD. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was very lucky to uh, to get into INSEAD and, and my wife uh, was also accepted at the same time, so we were one of the few couples which were uh, at the same time in INSEAD. It was, uh, I would say, difficult from the financial point of view because you, you have to support, uh, to spend, you know, it's expensive education and you don't have any salary. Um, but it was a life-changing experience, I would say. We met so many people from all, the, all around the world, so many entrepreneurs, uh, so many friends that you know we see on and off uh, as much as we can. So <clears throat> that was 2001, and when the, uh, I would say, uh, if you remember 2001, uh, we have the uh, 
the 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 yeah, the bombing in in New York. Huh? Oh, I remember these yeah. days. My brother was back then living in London, and um, we found out about the news at a bit later stage. So he actually called my mom, and he said, "I just wanted to tell you that I'm okay." And she was like, "Why are you telling me this?" And then we found out what happened. Um, mm. How was it actually back then in London for you? So I was uh, at inside at this time, and okay. uh, it was uh, extremely difficult because we had people from all over the world and were just watching TV, and everybody asked. You know, relatives in New York, in the U.S., and it was a terrible time for for the people, and it was a terrible time for the students mm -hmm. because suddenly nobody was recruiting anyone. And you know, when you go to a, a business school like Insad, usually you have ten job offers when you finish, uh, and you have to choose. And this is why people are going to a well-renowned place. But this year, half of the people didn't have any job at the end of the, of the business school. Was lucky to find something, and uh, my wife as well, because we have maybe more experience, and we decided to go for industry, not consulting or banking. Okay. <clears throat> and uh, so we started to to work in a, a company in the environmental area, a German company, mm -hmm. was manufacturing uh, all the beans you see in the streets. Okay. Uh, and they were manufacturing and managing, etc. And I worked with them for a couple of years. And actually, uh, you know, the entrepreneurial spirit came back at this time because this company was a family-owned company. It was growing very fast. And I said, well, this guy, they, they're normal people and they managed to do everything and grow business. It's 100 million euros and they raise finance. So maybe I can do it myself. So after some time, I decided, well, I want to do my, my own business. And so I left uh, in 2003. And I started the first company in Bulgaria because I saw opportunity. A lot of Bulgarian friends I was coming here very often. So I came back to Bulgaria. Okay, that's an interesting. So London, Germany, but then you decide to found a company here in, in yeah. Sofia. What year was that back then? 2003. 2003. You know, my wife told me I, I'm, I'm mad because all the <laughs> Bulgarians want to leave the country and I'm the only one that want to come in Bulgaria. <laughs> Um, I hear that very often. I heard it also myself. I moved back to Bulgaria after 11 years in Austria, I think like three years ago, and they were still telling me that I'm bad. <laughs> and why am I doing this? Like, <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so out of madness, you ended up in Bulgaria, yeah. founding a company with your wife. The first one was not. Was okay, it wasn't. Friends, okay. And, uh, there's a company involved in uh, data management, archiving, document okay. management. Okay. And it's been a successful company in Bulgaria. And we sold it um, two years ago, three years ago to uh, Iron Mountain, which is the world leader in document management. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was not a very <coughs> big business. And then in 2004, we, uh, we founded uh, CorePoint, uh, which is a BPO company, uh, together with first Philippe Ugrinov. He was a friend from uh, the Coopers and Library area. And then my wife joined us very quickly because we needed someone to organize ourselves. Two men, we are not doing the selling, but we need to be <laughs> doing the operations. And okay. so the three of us, we uh, started to build the business from 2004 onwards. It's been an extremely successful story. Mm -hmm. uh, we went through uh, <clears throat> difficult times. Uh, we were one of the first BPO in, uh, in Bulgaria, 2004. Uh, there was a couple of other guys trying to do something, but they never really managed to, to grow to, to a significant size. And I think one of the um, key success factors for us was that we knew nothing about the business. 
So we came here and we decided to do something the way we thought would be. I mean, we're talking about, you know, the first operation, BPR, call center operation, um, customer support, telesales, these kind of yes. activities. <clears throat> and we, we found out that uh, the way it was done, it was very amateurish and not very well organized in general terms and not very processed. So we, we decided to put lots of process, uh, lots of uh, procedures, lots of tools, and to manage you know, the team very nicely. I mean, like, uh, you know, empowering the team on one hand, but on the, on the end, you know, controlling the, the KPIs. Now, when you talk about that, it's quite normal. But 20 years or 18 years ago, it was not working like this for most uh, most players. So we start to have some success. We work for Austrian company. That was our first customer. Mm. <clears throat> and our our idea was Bulgaria has a lot of uh, potential as a multilingual platform because there's a lot of people that speaking very well foreign languages. And as soon as they learn a foreign language, they leave the country to go and work abroad. So that's very stupid. So we can use or can offer to these people nicely paid job in Bulgaria. <clears throat> and that's what we, we started to do. And the company started to grow, um, <clears throat> I think, very, very quickly. 2006, we raised some finance from a, a local uh, <clears throat> venture fund. And uh, 2007, we decided to open a, a branch in Romania uh, with our colleagues Grégoire and, and Jan. And... Uh, yeah, the company has been growing from, you know, zero to about 800 people in 2011, 12. 2011, we attracted the EBRD as a shareholder. Mm -hmm. uh, it was one of the first deal, uh, equity investment that the EBRD was doing in Bulgaria ever in this kind of sector. <coughs> I'm not even sure that they actually have this policy at all. You know, jumping yeah, they were as not a shareholder, really, that's uh, actually kind yeah. of, you know, like an exemption, right? No. Well, they, they, they do equity investment, okay. they do in big companies, in, mm -hmm. uh, in manufacturing, and <laughs> they wanted to do something in the uh, high-tech sector, so this is why they... How did you manage to convince them what was actually so special about uh, CoolPoint at this point? Well, uh, I think um, they thought that we are creating a lot of jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, we are like honest employer, you know, we're paying all the taxes, etc. Uh, we're attracting talent. And um, we were attracting uh, lots of foreign companies to come and discover Bulgaria. And I think that's, you know, uh, one of the success about the BPO industry that uh, when you start to have uh, the first company, big client was Europe Car, you know, the rent car company. Yes. And when they were doing a tender, they, they were, you know, choosing between us and some company in North Africa or Spain uh, as partners. And they decided to partner with us. Why? Any reason first because we had a good proposition in terms of financial quality, etc. And then we established a trust relationship because well, the manager were French, we were French, so we had you know <laughs> these kind of things that were working, and we had the people like EBRD as investors. So we say, okay, that's very serious people. Yeah, uh, it's actually very impressive to to win such kind of partners and also shareholders at this point. Um, I must admit, at some point, uh, I tried it, you know, to establish a company in Austria that was supposed to take care of expats moving to mm -hmm. <clears throat> Austria. And at this point, I was looking at the migration waves happening within the European Union because I was targeting mostly uh, European citizens. 
And when I saw the brain drain that is happening at this point around, you know, at the same mm-hmm. time in Bulgaria and in Romania, um, I was very saddened. Uh, and then at some point I thought I should be doing the opposite. I shouldn't be welcoming, you know, Bulgarians and Romanians here in, in Austria. Maybe it's a nice business, but uh, I'm basically, you know, working against the future of my, yeah. of my home country. So um, I was, uh, you know, listening to your story. I was actually inspired because you found a way to basically revert this brain exactly. so what, what that we, was happening. What we did, because as the business was growing, we suddenly found out that there was not enough resources in Bulgaria for us mm-hmm. as, as, uh, as Telus. Uh, we started to, to rebrand the company in 2012 when Telus became a shoulder, Telus International. Telus is a huge Canadian company. And they were looking to build a network of BPO operators on the world. They were in South America, they were in the Philippines, and they wanted a European partner. This is why we, we met and we decided to, to partner. Okay. And uh, very quickly, you know, we, uh, we had more and more international customers, Amazon, Google, etc., that okay, we want not five people speaking French, five people speaking German, but 50 German, 50 Swedish speakers, etc. because we are creating hubs. And, you know, that one half in Ireland, you know, we want to have in Sofia. <clears throat> so can you help? Can you do it? And we were looking for people and it was more and more difficult to recruit talent. And there were more and more competition. Ten years had passed and there are lots of new players, new entrants in the market. So we said, well, what the first thing we can do? And we said, well, let's try to to bring uh, foreigners to come to Sofia. Because if you go in a hub like Ireland, there's many, many foreigners working for BPO industry in Ireland. <clears throat> the blend, so we, we started to recruit foreigners with high agency and uh, we scouted people uh, from all over Europe to come here. And the very first was very difficult, you know? Obviously people like, where, Bulgaria, what's, I can only what the guess hell, what you going to do there, etc. Yeah. Uh, so quickly we found out, you know, people from the Nordic country were quite easy to bring here because they are, it's a sunny, it's warm. So people from Norway or Sweden, et cetera, even if you know, the salary in the country, but they, they can, some like it. People from Germany, it was almost impossible. Germany would never come here. People from you know, Latin country, France, Spain, Italy, Portugal were also quite easy to come because they find it quite similar here, I would say, in, in the, the way of living, the Mediterranean, <laughs> the coffee cultures, et cetera. So that was, the, I would say, the, the first wave of uh, trying to bring people here to support our growing operation because 2012 to 2016 maybe and that has been very successful and I think in the Telus operation in Sofia now maybe 25% of our foreigners uh, people is 1,000 people so we brought 1,000 people to live and work in Sofia wow that's a lot that's actually a lot you know for you know the condition where people would say for you to you as a French, are you mad to go to Bulgaria? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you found thousands more mad people who decided yeah. to move. Well, there were young here. people they wanted to be open. They were open. Then we found out that there's more, lots of people now, you know, like digital nomads. They travel around and they, they, they move from one job to the other one. So the guy was in a BPO center in Dublin and then he was in Palma and then he was in... Stockholm, and then you came to Sofia. Well, one year here, one year there, etc. Was it difficult to retain them? Okay, bringing them here uh, is one thing, but retaining them? Yeah, I think retaining is a challenge, but we find that, find that there were two kinds of people. The one that 
will never live mm-hmm. and the one that will live quite quickly. What do they have? Uh, how do they differ? Did you find out at some point, you know, something uh, in the philosophy probably? You know, we tried to, um, to use, to develop an AI-based tool to yeah. s- scan the CV before we invite it and say, and find what are the common parameters? But there were some, but it's very difficult to okay. I think it's also how you integrate them. So yeah, you have people that left after one week and that was a, a huge disappointment. A, a recruitment cost, uh, paying flats, paying flights, etc. And, uh, and they were in the period they could leave and they say, oh, it's not for me. They were scared. Mm-hmm. I guess they were scared by the country. They come here, they think they will like it and then and they are scared and, and, and they leave. So, wow, that was... Some of the people, you know, enjoyed it so much. They stayed here, they married, they have kids, etc. So we have, I suppose, uh, both things. And we have people in the middle, they stay for one year or two years. They decide they come here one year, and then go to the next mm-hmm. place. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the, to come back to the story of, you know, recruiting talent, the, the next thing we did was say, let's try to bring Bulgarian back in Bulgaria. Because, as you say, the brain drain is huge. And we say, well, if you are Bulgarian and you're living... 50 kilometers from London and you work uh, as a mechanic or as a waiter and uh, you cannot even pay your bills and you take two hours a day the, tra- uh, the metro to go somewhere and two hours to go back. Do you enjoy your life? So we try to do like focus group, talking to people, saying, yeah, if you come to work for us, you'll have almost the same salary as you get in London, you know. Mm-hmm. With a different category, you work in an office, you meet lots of people, we train you, we give you a career uh, potential, and you'll be close to your family. <clears throat> and we, we set up a, cro- a program which was called Mogatam um, Iskamtuk. Okay. And we launched this program, I think, in 2017. It's still ongoing, and we, you know, we're giving people special bonuses. They come back, like a sign on bonus and thing, and has been pretty successful at the beginning, you know. People say, hey, what is this, etc. But now I see that in every month there's a few tens of people that on the program coming back abroad and working here. And I think it's you know a huge um, interesting idea. You know, I spoke to uh, uh, to Christo from uh, Tuktam as well. You know, say yes. how can we collaborate on that? So we copied him with our Mogatam is <laughs> uh, <clears throat> But you we have a bit of a have a bit of different um, business idea and, uh, and model. But we hold going to the same direction, bring people back here because, uh, you know, I think if you want to change this country and make this country jump from the 19th century to the 21st, you need young, educated people to take responsibility, to develop business, <clears throat> to take the best thing from abroad and adapt to the best thing from Bulgaria and together make good things. You're actually making you know, a connection to my next question, which I actually wanted to ask at a later point. Because I still, <clears throat> there are still, you know, a couple of things that we maybe should put in between. But I'm going to start it from here. So what I observe in most of the, you know, global innovation hubs like Silicon Valley and Tel Aviv or Singapore, they are a magnet for talent from all over the mm. world. So they kind of, you know, bring the best brains from everywhere to them. Uh, and engage them in this innovation uh, ecosystem, working for startups, for, you know, tech leaders and so on and so forth. Um, what can we learn from your experience at TELUS of, you know, how to bring this talent? Um, and I'm here speaking not only bringing back Bulgarians, because I believe that 
Bulgaria is just like, you know, the foreigners in Sofia. They choose a place to live and spend their life also, depending on their lifestyle, where their life partner is, where their kids are. And I also must admit that sometimes maybe um, staying in the diaspora could help the ecosystem and the economy more than if you come back because you have built your connections. But what can we learn about attracting expats and maybe also people with non-Bulgarian background to Bulgaria so that we can engage them in the innovation uh, economy that we are trying you know, to build here? Mm -hmm. It's it's a challenge, of mm. course, and uh, <clears throat> you know, building an innovation hub does not happen in uh, in a few weeks. It takes years, <laughs> as you know. Of course. Uh, and uh, to do that, you you need first to have a, a strong uh, support from government. If government is not supporting building of an innovation hub, you'll never succeed. You can do whatever you want. And I can tell a lot of stories. I uh, think we can say that out loud now, hoping that this will change with the new parliament that we're going to be electing soon. Yeah, let's yeah, see. Yeah. But I, I think uh, <clears throat> Bulgaria has the capacity to build such innovation hub because it can attract people and it can offer very good quality of life. And that's one of the important things uh, for people. It's a good location, it's uh, lots of nature and... Uh, I think you can have a very good quality of, of life here. Um, I think uh, <clears throat> Bulgaria has been very good at uh, releasing the uh, European money, which were used for the launching the first one, launch uh, and 11 a few years ago. Yes. And they were much better than Romania, for example, on, in doing that. And that helped to start an ecosystem, having lots of startups, <clears throat> then bringing more and more uh, funds to the region. And... Uh, you know, all these guys, they're doing a great job. They're creating funds, they're trying to make regional uh, VC, private equity funds that can invest in the, in the region and to help, you know, creating uh, teams here. So that's, that's a very good thing. Um, but you need to, to invest in research and development as well. And that's not the fund that will invest, it's the government policy. And if you look at, you know, research and development investment in Bulgaria compared to other European countries can give you the statistic 0.2% of GDP is invested in research and development in Bulgaria, 8% in Norway. You can just, and the GDP in Norway is not the GDP uh, in Bulgaria. Uh, yeah, yeah, I can only, yeah. So I've seen imagine. some uh, uh, some government uh, officials in how we're going to double the investment in R&D in Bulgaria. That's great. But that will be from 0 to 0.4%. You need not double, you need to make it 20 times more. When you make it 20 times more, you'll be able to retain the talent in the Bulgarian University, in the Bulgarian Research Institute, and stop the, the brain drain. Because <clears throat> the worst thing that happens is we train people, we have lots of smart people, they go to the big, nicest school in Bulgaria, to CMEG, to whatever, and then they go abroad and they never come back. Mm -hmm. And we see the same in France, actually. Even you know, rich country like France, they're saying that there's not enough money going into research and development at the government level. Even it's five percent of GDP, and people in university, uh, the the top guy, they go in the U.S. or in Germany or in the U.K. because they get lots of grants to carry on their research. Mm -hmm. so this is a, a huge problem, and uh, the the country will not evolve until we really start to invest seriously in this in this R and D at the 
government institutional level to retain talent, to retain people and build some hubs. Is the first thing. The second thing, <clears throat> I, I believe that we Bulgaria cannot do everything. So if you want to build some hub, to be uh, build an ecosystem uh, on innovation, you have to select some areas where you think that you have um, an advantage, where you think you can differentiate yourself from the other guys. Okay. Could you, from your perspective, maybe point out where do you believe we have the most potential? So the, the first thing that comes to mind, you know, there's lots of uh, very good uh, IT industry in Bulgaria. So everything which is around think AI, mm -hmm. machine learning, uh, anything about IoT, I think could be developed as hub. But keep in mind there's lots of competition because all around the world there's similar, similar hubs, that's one thing. The second thing that comes to mind is my, you know, it's linked to my new business, Nasekomo, it's biotechnologies. I think, well, there's almost nothing in biotechnologies here. Why mm -hmm. not try to create a hub about biotechnology? There are very good scientists also in the country, and there's potential. And biotechnology is a very wide uh, sector, so you can select you know, some, uh, some, some segment. That's actually an interesting perspective, because on one hand, you would uh, say that most potential could be in, in a place where we have accumulated maybe most of the knowledge. And then on the other hand, there is also a different strategy where you decide to be the first mover. Mm -hmm. And they see, I mean, knowing your resume and knowing your history so far, I see you more like the first mover type of person. Yeah, I mean, you decided to, to found a company in biotechnologies uh, in Bulgaria. <laughs> yeah. Um, I can only guess not knowing much about the business before you started it. Yeah, learning on the way. Yeah. I'm, I'm like a second mover. Yeah, <laughs> uh, second mover, yes. No, but why I went into this business? I'll, I'll tell you when uh, uh, we started to um, to exit from the um, the Telus business back in 2016, 2017. I told Telus, you know, I want to do something different. <clears throat> I have a wonderful uh, person that will be uh, the general manager of the, of the company. His name is Christina. I'm <laughs> sure she'll do a great job. <laughs> And me and my wife, my partner, we decided that uh, we want to explore new new fields. Before you proceed, though, there was uh, something that I wanted to ask you because I can only guess that it's kind of you know difficult, especially when you've built something from scratch. Um, so you found Coal Point Europe. Um, it got acquired by Telus. You grew it to at uh, this point when it was acquired to three thousand. No, how many people were when there? We sold it about four thousand people. Four thousand mm -hmm. people. How do you separate yourself from this kind of commitment from this baby? Because, I mean, it took how many years of your life? And yours and your, your wife's. Yeah. So it was also a daily topic at home. How do you, I don't know, how do you cut the ties and start something new? It's very difficult to cut the ties. Uh, it took 13 years to, to get there. And as you say, yeah, we had... Uh, no daily meeting at home, like operativka at uh, lunch and dinner, and it, it never stops I mean, during the holidays, etc. So it was our daily life for sure. Uh, but we enjoyed it uh, because why we wouldn't have done it. So as far as we enjoyed it, we say that that's great to, to continue the business. Uh, in cutting cutting the tie and decided, okay, that's it. Let's let's leave it to to someone else. 
was made easy because we had something else, another project afterwards. Mm -hmm. uh, cutting it without another project would have been much, much more difficult. I see. Uh, at the same time, the, you know, the, we did not cut the tie just like this because we, uh, uh, we continue to support the company and we have many friends there and we are in an extremely good uh, relationship with the Telus um, people in, back in Canada with the local management. We are still friends. We are still participating in the Telus Days of Giving uh, when they actually occur. Uh, so we have we go to parties, etc. So I think we we kept the best of the Telus, <laughs> the, the the friendship, the relationship, and we left them the work. So maybe that was <laughs> the okay, best solution. Okay, that's unfair. <laughs> <coughs> okay, I see. Um, I wanted to also tap into another topic. So you've worked together side by side with your wife, with your life partner. And as you said, it was also a huge part of your private daily life. Mm -hmm. And after 13 years, you found the next company again with your life partner. Um, in my personal opinion, this is like a test for a good relationship. Can you work together as well or not? because it could be very challenging. What did you learn from this experience? And uh, how is it to, how do you make it work? You know, there are a lot of partners, couples that I know who try that and it's, it's just not working. You know, sometimes they, either the business suffers or their relationship suffers yeah. from <laughs> this kind of combination. How do you make it work? Well, actually we, um, we started work, we, we met when we were working together back in, 95. Yes. Uh, so we were working in audit company and that's where we met and we uh, we started a relationship at, the, at, at this time and well the work was going on well <laughs> I would say. Uh, but later on uh, we, we found out that uh, to, to make it work you need to have clear uh, responsibility mm -hmm. and uh, when, when you have startup you, you have the, the um, um, you, you start uh, being involved in, in many, many things, something you don't know, <laughs> something you know, and you you kind of have a, an opinion on lots of things. True. Uh, you, you, your opinion is maybe not the best uh, most of the time. But uh, if you, you know, in a team and you say, the, you know, it's cool with my life partner, but Philippe, which has our the third partner in the business, we say, okay, everybody has a, has a responsibility. Everybody has a a say and we listen to him. So in some things I have a say, but I listen to what the guy or the girl decides. And that's it. So it's in discussion, but the, the decision is to one one person, not mm -hmm. to the two or, or the three. And by, you know, I would say silosing the uh, the responsibility, uh, we, okay. we made it work. Because then we have, you know, the, the other thing which is funny and uh, we call it like opinion shopping. So the people which are below you, they go to one, say, say something, they go to the second one, say something else, the third one, say something different, and then they choose what they want. Uh? Often we believe that this is like the way we do democracy, you know, asking everyone for their opinion and then trying, you know, to compromise. But it's in business, it's sometimes just impossible. And yeah, um, please continue. Yeah, you have, yeah. you have to, to, no, of course, you have to listen to, to all the people and uh, try to compile things. But uh Everybody has a different agenda, a different vision, and sometimes you have to take decisions that you know people won't like for now. But you see, you know, they are good for the company. Maybe they are not good for you, but they're good for the company, and they're good for one thousand people and not for one. 
And that happens every day. Uh, and that's very difficult. Yeah. I can only guess that it's also very difficult to still commit to go in one direction, you know, the, the, the leadership, the three of you, especially when you do not agree with the, you know, opinion of those who is actually, you know, the person who is responsible for this uh, domain or for this mm -hmm. type of decisions, but you still commit, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this is, you know, the secret of, okay, I may not agree with you, but... If we decide we're going this way, then we just do it. Yeah, together. and yeah. Uh, you know, have to have to support these people because if you start splitting, mm -hmm. you say, "Oh, uh, okay, I'll do that because he wants it, but I'm not really convinced." If you do that to someone else, you create doubt. If you okay. start to create doubt in the team, it's dead. Okay. The team uh, must be united very well, and uh, you know you have to have a common goal, a vision, where you want to go, how you want to to, to go there. And uh, have to engage everyone into in, into this. Mm -hmm. What was actually the most difficult decision that you had to make so far as a leader, as a co-founder, partner? Oh, there were many difficult decisions. Mm. You know, in uh, almost twenty years as an entrepreneur, uh, we face issues, uh, lots of issues, all the time. Um, it's very difficult to to highlight uh, okay. a single one. To, to, to be honest, um, well, I mean, we, with with Nasekomo, I, I told you we had some uh, some issues. At some point, we decided to you know uh, move our factory to a new new location. Mm -hmm. That was heartbreaking uh, because we spent so much time and money, but at some time you have to say take your losses. Mm -hmm. uh, like you play poker and they say, okay, that, that's it. Uh, I mean, going forward will not help. So let's uh, stop and turn right. And uh, that was one decision. Um, other decision when we uh, well, we decided to, to sell the business to, to tell us, you know. So as um, I would say that was um, difficult because we've, we've been approached by several companies over the years. And I remember the first one that came to, to see us and they put an offer on the table and uh, it was not a bad offer, but, you know, we look at this, okay, we're going to give you this amount of money, this, 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 this. you sign here. Okay, well, hmm. And uh, I was the one against it, my partner, so I said, okay, let's do a let's take it. No, we can do much better. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. And after a few days, he said, okay, we, uh, we trust you, we'll do much better. And we did much better. But that was a, a, a difficult decision because uh, if we didn't do much better, <laughs> maybe, you know, I wouldn't be married anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is also, you know, the difficult part in doing business with your life partner that um, bad situations, crisis, bad decisions can actually exactly. cost your relationship. And I also know such stories and they're not pleasant at all. You know. Um, now, coming back to Nasekomo, you mentioned that um, one thing that, you know, <clears throat> we still don't do properly in Bulgaria is R&D. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. <laughs> and um, what you're doing with Nasekomo at this point is actually pretty much dependent on R&D. Um, do you finance that yourself or how do you actually build a, a 
biotech business in conditions like like Bulgaria. So we do a, a huge amount of R&D. Mm. Uh, you know, in Nasekomo, we are uh, working with an insect, which mm. is... Uh, <clears throat> the soldier fly. The black soldier fly. Black soldier fly. It's a very nice insect. I should have bought you one. It's a fly which is absolutely not invasive, so it, it doesn't. It's not used to human. So it's not like a normal fly that comes around you. Oh, and it's try not to, that. Okay. It just staying in, in there, the area, and the <clears throat> the, um, the life cycle of the fly is about forty days, and the, the adult flies has a life of eight days. And during the eight days, what they do, they mate, and and that's it. And then they they die. And during this uh, adult life. Uh, they don't eat, they don't drink, but they have no mouse. So they live on the reserve that accumulated into uh, the earlier life as a, as a larvae. Oh, really? So oh, the good thing is, you know, this, um, the fly is not a pest. It goes, when it goes outside, it will not attack people, not try to eat anything. It's like the crickets kind of thing you see, you see mm -hmm. in movies. Uh, and it's also a, a fly that naturally you can find uh, all over Europe. Uh, you can find it in Bulgaria, in Romania, in Greece, in spotted at many places. Not that, uh, and you don't see it because it's not like the other flies coming to bother you. But it exists everywhere. Uh, so it's it's a natural animal. You see it, it anywhere. What we're doing is we say, okay, from this natural animal, we know that we can. Yeah, it has extraordinary capacity to accumulate uh, body weight very fast. So in ten days. Mm -hmm. It can grow 10,000 times in weight, from 20 microgram to 200 milligram. Wow. 10,000 times. And how does it grow? If it feeds on the organic products, it can feed on anything. Uh, what we are using to feed our insect are um, co products from the agro industry. So, mm -hmm. for example, if you have a brewery, you are producing beer. Mm -hmm. and when you finish approaching the beer, the, uh, the malt, yeah. uh, which is uh, the remaining, is called the span grain. Mm -hmm. And this span grain is uh, still has value in it. It's a cereal product. Uh, it cannot do alcohol anymore, but can use it to, to do something. So sometimes they feed cows or pigs with it. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes they don't have the opportunity because there's no cow or pigs around, so they don't know what to do with it. And we buy it from brewers. We mix it with other ingredients. And we prepare a special recipe for the insect. Okay. And to what we've been doing over the last four years now is, on one hand, um, doing R&D, how do you feed best the insect? Mm -hmm. We've tested hundreds of diets, hundreds of mix, and see uh, how fast they grow. So when you, you take, uh, what's important is what it will be, the food conversion ratio. When you take 100 kilograms of food, what will be the weight of the larvae after 10 days? And the food conversion ratio, the uh, uh, actually the, the the lowest it is, the, the, the better. So if you can say if you 100 kilogram of food will give you 100 kilograms of larvae, mm -hmm, that would be fantastic. Mm -hmm. That's not the case. So today the food conversion ratio is about 400 kilogram of food will give you 25 kilogram of larvae, and the remaining uh, is uh, water evaporating because the food has water in the food it evaporates. And the what we call uh, uh, the insect frass, which is the remaining of the, of the production process, and the insect frass um, is a high-value fertilizer. It's an organic fertilizer recognized okay. on European level. And today, 
we use it with uh, well-known biofarmers in Bulgaria, and that helps them enhance and protect the crops much better than any other chemical fertilizer, for example. Wow. So, and what do you produce from um, from the flies? From the flies. So oh. you have the frass and you take out so the body mass. Just to give mass. you an idea of yeah. you know, the way it works, we mm -hmm. we collect the substrate. We we create the substrate, which is this is a co-product. We put seed larvae, which are like the baby one day old mm. larvae inside, and after one week, <coughs> ten days, I would say, uh, we separate the the larvae from the substrate. The substrate yeah. becomes the frass, and the larvae then goes through a processing. Uh, okay. And, and the processing <coughs> is basically uh, you dry them, and then you press them. Mm -hmm. And from the press, you have two products. One is called the insect protein. Okay. The other one is the insect oil. Mm -hmm. And then both products today are used in uh, animal feed. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and uh, the legislation is evolving uh, quickly and in the right direction. Uh, since 2017, you can feed uh, pets and uh, fish, mm -hmm. aqua feed, that were the two main market. Since last month, 9th of September, you can also feed uh, poultry and pigs with the, this kind of product. Wow. Uh, insect protein. So there's this huge uh, huge market. Yeah. And the idea that the insect protein um, brings a lot of um, uh, you know sustainability sustainability benefits compared to product it's replacing. So insect protein is replacing fish meal, for example. So fish meal is the uh, the, the small fish that capture off the mm -hmm. coast of Peru. You make it the flower. You bring it to Europe. Uh, in uh, 20 years, there won't be any more fish in the ocean if we yes. put it this way. So we're protecting the, uh, the ocean in this, in this way and by reducing the consumption of fish meal. Um, the other kind of uh, protein that is used in animal feed is soya. And you know, soya is planted mostly in Brazil. It's imported in, the, in Europe. You cut trees, plant soya, export to Europe. Europe is dependent and you have deforestation. So again, we are on the sustainability thing, we're replacing these kind of products. <clears throat> so we have lots of sustainability benefits as a, for our products, but not only, we have also functional benefits. And that's where the R&D bits comes in, mm -hmm. and because there's a lot of um, R&D currently being carried on on why is it so beneficial for animals to eat black solder fly flour, for example, or protein. And we find out that there are antibiotics in the black solder fly. Antibiotics, uh, okay. So, you know, uh, there's lots of resistance to antibiotics by yes. human beings more and more. And that's a huge problem because we cannot find new antibiotics to cure people. And there we find there's antibiotics wow. in this. So we need to, a lot of research, we know how to extract it and what are the, the protection, what it brings to the table. But what we know is that uh, there's been lots of studies when you feed dogs, for example, with um, insect-based product, dog food, mm -hmm. uh, they, are, they stop to be allergic to the food. So they have anti-allergenic properties in the insects. Uh, something that the, uh, and the fur is getting uh, much nicer. Um, are there any downsides? Well, we didn't find them. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, I don't think they should, mm -hmm. should, should be done. You know, uh, eating insects 
for animals is is very natural. Yes. If you remember, fifty years ago, while the um, the chicken they were eating insects in the backyard before mm -hmm. you start to give them soya from Brazil, they were eating uh, insects. The pigs, you look at the pigs in the field, they go and they look for insects. Mm. The dogs, the same. For some people also, I mean, some human, but not in our parts of the world. Not, not yet. Actually, that was very funny because uh, just recently at the Recursive, we wrote, I think, an article about um, Nusikomo and um, others in, in the field. And then someone commented, I'm not going to eat flies. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Well, we're not asking them to. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, this is an interesting subject. If we look in the long term, as we need uh, more and more uh, sources of protein for the planet, we look as we need to find solutions. What well, are different solutions? And uh, you know, people looking at the plant-based protein, yes. which is basically giving you vegetables and playing its meat. That's my, <laughs> my mm. interpretation of it. But it's good that people eat more vegetables. Uh, you look at the cell-based meat, which is today. I would say very chemical solution, but mm -hmm. maybe it has, it has some, some future. It's not regulated yet, a regulated. Uh, there's no regulation out. You can use it. So it's mm -hmm. a long, long shot and very expensive. You look at insect protein. And insect protein works on two, two levels. You can feed insect protein to the animals that you feed the human, or you can feed directly insect protein to human as a flower. And... Uh, that will that will happen. Uh, <clears throat> more and more insects get authorized under uh, European regulation. Mm -hmm. uh, they were not in the past. They are two, three this year, and our insect, the black solar fly, I hope will get authorized in two to three years from now. Wow, it's so a fun. very regulated process. Mm -hmm. There's years and years of studies, hundreds of scientific uh, uh, people involved and in studies being done before something is authorized in Europe. It's not like I decide I do it now. Doesn't okay. work like this. Our you know, company is heavily regulated. Every month, we have at least two times control from the local authorities. Ooh. They come to see how we feed insects, how we we, we look af after them, how we process uh, the insect, how we label the products, etc., etc., etc. We are under permanent control. And is we, that we, typical for um, your industry? I think the, the the food and feed industry, yes, it, it so, is under control. Okay. Uh, maybe we are under special control because uh, you know it's a new industry and people wouldn't say are scared, but you know they are wondering what happening, what we're doing, etc. Maybe they're just curious. They want to visit and, you and more often. Curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, everybody that comes to see what we're doing is fantastic. So. Uh, Never seen anyone say, well, uh, <laughs> no, people don't like insects, etc. But uh, when they understand what we're doing, etc., it's they, that's real innovation. That's what we want to do to see more in Bulgaria, a company like yours. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I also wonder something else. Um, at what point was, you know, did you develop this um, attitude for environmental products and, um, you know, businesses who actually think cradle to cradle? Because you are now creating a business like that. You've, yeah, you we, have we are almost the, no waste, yeah? We have no waste. We're in the circular economy. Yeah. And uh, what we know, what we're selling is that, you know, we are collecting some product with low value, mm. which could become waste or 
I don't think we collect waste because today it's not authorized to, to use waste. So we, we use uh, what we call pre-consumer waste. That's what's authorized in the European regulation. It's a product, for example, as I mentioned, from the agro-industry, or it could be uh, uh, leftover or unsold product from supermarkets. That's yes. the kind of thing we can we are authorized to use. And with this pre, um, pre-consumer waste product, we make a mixed, we raise the, the insect, etc. And then we have three products that are all used into uh, feed, to feed mm-hmm. the animal or to feed the plant, and we have zero waste. Mm-hmm. The only waste is water evaporating, yes. and that's it. And then the idea that when we feed the plant with our you know, uh, organic fertilizer, it goes back into um, the soil, soil regeneration, grows the plants, the barley, for example, mm-hmm. go to the brewery, produce the, uh, the beer, get the uh, span grain, and we start again and again and again. Mm. And that's, you know, the, the really... The magic of what we are doing is this circular economy and making a never-ending uh, circle. Yes. As I was doing my research, there was also something else that struck me that you're also thinking about um, putting the plants or I don't know how you actually, you know, the factories uh, close to those who are going, you know, to use uh, the byproducts of, uh, do you call it byproducts, you know? So, so what we were, um, we're looking at doing is <clears throat> indeed... Uh, you know, reduce uh, the CO2 footprint. Mm-hmm. And to do that, we say, well, we don't need to you know, transport any kind of co-product from agro-industry for hundreds of kilometers to bring in factory to process. Yeah. We are bringing the factory close to the source of uh, co-product. To the source of the co-products. Yeah. Okay, I see. So mm-hmm. uh, pretty much the, um, the model is that we're developing, we call it a hub-and-spoke model. Mm-hmm. We have a sample hub where we are doing the reproduction of uh, the black solar flies. Okay. So producing millions, billions of seed larvae, baby mm-hmm. larvae. And then we ship the seed larvae to the spokes. And the spoke is called a bioconversion center. Mm-hmm. In the bioconversion center, you have the, say the simplest process, which is taking the substrate, mixing with the seed larvae, and getting the, the ready larvae. Okay. okay. And then the ready larvae, depending on the size of the bioconversion center, you either process them on, on the site or you collect them back into a second hub to process them. So there's economies of scale. So how fast can you actually, you know, uh, establish a bioconversion, how do you, a bioconversion center? Yeah. Uh, well, it's a it's manufacturing entity. So if you start mm-hmm. from scratch, you know, with the permitting building exercise, mm-hmm. about a two years project. Okay. Uh, but we are working on you know, developing a more flexible technology, mm-hmm. uh, which can be adapted and uh, implemented much much faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, in the next you know, couple of years, we'll be able to provide like a turnkey solution. Um, because our vision is really, you know, there's lots of people with co-product waste streams, and they don't really want know what to do with it, mm. and they go to burn it or put it in the landfill, which is a huge waste. So we go to these guys and say, okay, here are the, the, the solution. It's a turnkey solution. That's a, it's a black box. You put your input there. Mm-hmm. We send you the small uh, larvae there. Arrive, everything is automated. Yes. And you get the final product. 
Wow. And it's, you know, uh, like insect as a service, you can call it whatever, but yeah. it's uh, <laughs> um, we need a, really a, a turnkey solution. And our teams will be in charge of delivering the, the seed larvae, but also controlling, monitoring everything which is happening into this uh, mm -hmm. automated factory. Uh, so we are see why we're building an IoT platform. Uh, we are, you know, looking for to recruit guys with that intelligence that can extract the data, do machine learning and feedback information. It should be like you know, increase the temperature, lower the temperature, hard water, etc. I hope some of them will be now listening to I us. I hope so. Yeah. so. <laughs> and your CV. <laughs> okay. Uh, do you see that uh, also as a B2C type of thing? Like, can I produce also at home? <laughs> wow, <laughs> or wow, help wow. you produce in a way? I mean, this is, of course, pretty much in the future, but. This is the future. Yeah. No, I don't think it will be B2C, but it will be maybe uh, like. Maybe go to smaller size. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we uh, recently had discussion with a, uh, a very large uh, retail chain of yes. shops, uh, uh, international one, and what they're looking to do is to use the black solar flight to recycle all their own uh, waste. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they want to say, say, can you design a solution which can put close to each shop, basically, or big shop, mm -hmm. uh, so that we don't need to carry things uh, around. That's actually a huge problem. I mean, there, there's been a statistics that one third of the products in, in a supermarket just, you know, go to waste because of, you know, expiration dates. Exactly. So it's one of the biggest producers actually of uh, food waste. In one third of producers. all the food produce in mm -hmm. the world goes to waste. Yeah. So it's one third in the shops, but it's one third everywhere. Mm. Uh, and, you know, we say that we need more food to feed more people. But let's try to use the food that we produce. One third is huge. Yeah. It's, uh, I think, one, one trillion tons per year of uh, food waste on the planet. Imagine. Of people dying, they can't have us again, and we are wasting things uh, every day. Um, it's one of the big injustices that uh, I always get frustrated when I think about it. But I'm... You found a solution that has actually huge potential, yeah. um, and it pretty much depends on R and D uh, and yeah, so processes. You, from what I, process, what I hear, yeah. you're yeah. asking earlier about financing. We finance all that, so mm. we uh, <clears throat> we finance. We have lots of private investors. Private uh, investors, okay. That are you know believe in what we are doing, believe in the team, believe in the uh, in the vision that we are. We are showing them. We have investment funds, mm -hmm. actually two Bogan investment fund, Morningside Hill Capital and New Vision 3. Mm -hmm. uh, we have industrials. Yeah. Even in Bulgaria, we have industrials that are supporting us because they believe uh, that's the right thing to do. And then we look after obtaining some grants. So, uh, mm -hmm. This is quite complicated uh, because uh, People say, I go, you should have European grants, etc. But, you know, getting European grants, a big one, is very complex. There's huge competition. Uh, there's a program called Horizon 2120. Uh, no, it's 30, I think. I hope uh, that anyone who's listening knows about this program. <laughs> yeah, it's a plan, but, uh, well, mm -hmm. you know, there's like uh, every quarter you can apply and there's 4,000 companies applying and then mm. 40 will be financed. And it takes a lot of resources to prepare actually the paperwork for it. So Absolutely. for a business, I think it's at least one person full-time employed, you yeah, know, yeah. only to do 
We have one person doing only that for us, and then we work with consulting company, which are specialized and and, and helping. Okay. Uh, and uh, you know, we were told when, when you come from Bulgaria, you know your your file is looked with uh, some kind of suspicion from time to time. Really? Yeah. Okay. That's very disappointing. Because what I hear from um, you know leaders in the European community is that we Bulgarians do not apply enough. That we should actually have more applications and. To, yeah, but I think you have been very different between you know, what the top guys are doing okay. and the guys who are reviewing and assessing the files are, are doing. Uh, I was told you know, very directly that if you want to apply for a significant European funding, uh, like as a consortium of companies, you should never apply with as a Bulgarian leading company because the guy has a bad reputation. Why? I don't know, but that was people saying. And now what we're doing, we're applying with other companies from other countries apparently have better reputation. I see. Okay. Yeah. And uh, that, that, that's a statue and that, that can be changed. You know, we need good examples mm -hmm. and this will, this will happen. Good examples like you. Um, there is so much more that I want to ask you and I'm, you know, now at this point a bit pissed that we don't have much more time. Um, there is so much uh, that also I, as a business leader, can learn from you. Uh, so I hope that we'll meet at some point again. Um, but sure, yeah, I would say maybe we should come to an end. And at the end, I always have this question, which, yeah, I think it shows, you know, or that it exemplifies the mindset that we're looking uh, for here in the podcast. And this is the entrepreneurial mindset, you know, the mindset who is... Um, always ready to grow and interested in innovation and curious about the future, ready to build the future with others. Uh, so the question is, what do you want to be remembered for? Hmm. hmm. A tough question. Huh? It is. I'm not a politician, so... <laughs> no. Not for changing things. I read in an interview somewhere that uh, you're someone who is very good at developing long-term vision. Um, this is why I thought that maybe this question won't be that difficult for you. Yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me see a little bit. Um, uh, you know, for me, uh, important. I want to be remembered as a as a good person, mm. uh, person with a good ethics. It's uh, very important for me in all my business. You know, ethics is, is number one. If you don't respect ethics, you can't do business. And uh, a lot of experience with very good people and with very bad people. So that, that's something for me is important. Uh, I want, you know, my kids to be proud of what I am and my wife we are doing together in mm -hmm. terms of, you know, building businesses. As you say, as an entrepreneur, I think... Uh, People remember, will remember, I hope will remember me as someone that, you know, is taking risk and is succeeded in what, what is building as an ambitious plan mm. and uh, yeah, make them a reality. Whether I'll succeed, I don't know. I could say that you've done a pretty good job so far. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for being with us here. It was a pleasure. Looking forward to the next meeting again. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> 
In the next episode of the Recursive Podcast, Georgi talks to the designer turned entrepreneur Gergana Stancheva. She co-founded Lamom, a startup producing biodegradable laminated film for print and packaging. Because that's been, especially in the beginning, <laughs> that was a constant issue. We were always like, yeah, yeah, we'll be done in like a few more months and we'll be out on the market. And it's like, yeah, no, you're actually developing a new product. You need physical time to try things. <laughs> fail <laughs> and then try new things and fail some more and then you know figure out this actual product and how to do it. And if you are just as passionate about innovation as we are, hit subscribe for the Recursive Podcast on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform. We're everywhere.